Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissa. I am here with Carrie Alavelda, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about how important women are, or are women, to the Democratic Party and its 2020, 2022 chances. Obviously, the answer is obvious. Very, very important. <laughs> so today in The Brief, we'll be talking to Emily Kane. She is the executive director of Emily's List. Uh, Emily's List, if you don't know, it's the nation's premier organization focused on recruiting and supporting women candidates. Longtime Daily Coast readers might remember Kane as she was a Daily Coast back candidate for Maine's second congressional district back in 2014 and 2016. Now, the Maine second district is Maine's rural district. Donald Trump won it twice, but at the House level, it's pretty swingy. Leans Republican, but Democrats can win it, and right now it's actually held by a Democrat. We'll talk to Kane about Emily's List 2022 recruitment efforts, our chances to hold Congress, the importance of women when it comes to winning, and a double standard that women candidates and elected officials face. And right now we're seeing it carry with Vice President Kamala Harris. Kane will be joining us in a bit, but first, Carrie, another week has gone by and Republicans still can't quit Trump, right? They're, they're, it's like they're doing everything they can to give us a chance in 2022 when history says we should be losing control of Congress. Right. Well, we just we thank them. We thank them for for <laughs> for all they're doing for us. I mean, what's really fascinating now is watching Senate Republicans in particular you know, talk like tr- try to backpedal from Trump. I mean, they let him, they gifted him the party, right? And now you've got, you've got, I mean, he has got, I don't even know where to start. Let's just say, first of all, Senate Republicans are trying to say that 2022 is going to be about policies and what the Biden agenda has done to America. And, and we all how, have a great laugh. <laughs> right. And they're going to do something, you know, fantastic going forward. And it's going to be forward looking. Right. Then Trump goes to CPAC in Texas, jumps up on stage. Ticks through the teleprompter stuff, which is mostly about, you know, the caravans, the immigrant caravans and the critical race theory. You know, this is the this is the new talking point. But all this sort of anti-black, anti-brown stuff, they're they're the problem in America for white Americans. Right. That whole thing, that whole scapegoating thing. And then just after he does that, he spends like his most passionate, you know, part of his speech talking about his 2020 grievances and how ticked off he is and how the election was stolen and it was rigged, et cetera. So like that is the exact conversation that Senate Republicans are saying, this isn't going to, you know, this isn't what our campaign is going to be about. But Trump, who is dominating the conversation among primary GOP primary opponents in the top tier Senate races is is pushing that. Uh, I mean, not exclusively. He's hitting some of their talking points, but he's mainly pushing the 2020 was rigged thing. And none of them want any piece of it. I mean, Rick Scott, who's running the GOP campaign arm, doesn't want to doesn't want to be touching on that. He wants to be forward looking. Mitch McConnell refers to Trump's uh administration, Trump's four-year occupation of the Oval Office, lovingly as the former administration, right? He doesn't like to say Trump's name as if they didn't just like, you know, spend four years letting Trump savage the country. And, you know, the Senate GOP number two, John Thune, is saying, we can't be looking back. We have to be looking forward. And the that's not what's happening. That's not what's at, happening. At, on the ground in those primaries, it's not. It's definitely not happening. The conversation resolves around this, the big lie. And even at CPAC, Trump's biggest applause lines were, were, were around how everything was stolen from him, right? Like the, the critical race theory, like, yeah, they got to go through the motions, but I, he doesn't really care. 
about that. No. Clearly, he's got the one big grievance, and that is that he lost, and he still can't get over the fact that he lost. Now, the Senate and the House are showing really contrasting approaches to dealing with Trump, right? The Senate, the majority of the Senate runs through the almost the exact same 2020 battleground states, right? We're talking about Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Uh, I think I'm missing one, but it is well, almost Ohio, the, Florida, um, there's Florida. Gonna, yeah, yeah. yeah, and Ohio and, and Iowa, yeah. which are sort of reach states, right? But they're still right, within right. the realm of possibility. And so Mitch McConnell clearly had, he, I mean, he knows the math. He knows that the Trump cult is about 25%, 20-25, maybe 30% of voters. And that is not enough to win a competitive Senate race in a battleground state. Now, the House is different. The House is, is mostly gerrymandered and might be even more so depending on how states uh, draw the maps, because that's going to be we don't even know what the House maps look like. But Republicans control more redistricting than Democrats do. So there is a real chance that we actually may have tougher districts. And thus, when you have such heavy gerrymandering, a lot of what the House is motivated by is really appealing to that base to make sure that they turn out and vote. That's why you had the Republican leader in the House go down to Florida and basically give Donald Trump CPR after January 6th, right? He was he was sort of marginalized. Push him to the floor, pump some life into him. (laughs) I mean, come on. Yeah, McCarthy literally brought Trump back to life and made him relevant when, you know, he has no social media platform. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of a just media in general platform. He, you know, his his blog was an absolute total disaster. So he could have been left for dead. Republican, and you know that, that Mitch McConnell wanted him left for dead. But then, of course, Mitch McConnell also did not impeach. That could have done the trick, too. So right. there is no absolving Mitch McConnell because he could have done what he needed to do at that time to be done with Trump once no, and for all. But he chickened really out. He they chickened didn't, out. And, and frankly, Kevin McCarthy is such a wishy-washy character. If if Mitch McConnell had really wanted to take a stand and said, listen, don't you dare do this or we'll go to war with you. I don't even know. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy is just like, what, what a total loser, man. I mean, he is just the flimsiest of characters. And I have to say, you know, I think you're right about the House and the gerrymandering. And I do think it's going to be a tougher chamber for us. But I really think that the, you know, the places where the control of the lower chamber is going to be decided are going to be, you know, just really on the margins in these swing districts. And Trump is not going to help them. Trump like grousing about his 2020 loss and spreading the big lie and, you know, that type of stuff that is not going to help them in the swing districts. So the question is how many swing districts are there? How much can they protect their swingy incumbents? And in the places where they can't protect them, like Trump is Trump is a disaster for them in those districts. Yeah. You know, we've we've talked about this before, Carrie, and it just strikes me um, week after week that we're not seeing a Republican resistance to Joe Biden. It is sort of a truism of modern American politics that when you are out of power, the partisans of the people out of power are so livid and angry that they rise up and they create sort of movement and energy for that midterm election. And that's one reason that the party out of power gains an average around 33 seats in the House in that first year of a new president's um, tenure. You saw this during the Obama years with the Tea Party movement. And we laughed at it and laughed at it and pointed at it and look at these dumbasses with tricot, you know, the tricot hats. And yet they, you know, they basically took over Congress and made it a lot tougher for Obama to do anything for the last six years of his presidency. Trump gets elected and he wasn't even he wasn't even sworn in before we had a resistance with, you know, massive marches, millions of people around the country. And that resistance gave us the the fuel for Democratic pickups every year, every single year of the Trump years. And and so there's nothing like that because Joe Biden, old white guy, you know, they're, they're so conditioned to hate women and people of color that they just can't really get excited for Joe Biden. And then part of it, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm in a bubble, Carrie. You know, we here we are at Daily Coast. Like, you know, maybe I have rose tinted glasses and I'm just not seeing this new movement. And yet we just got, we just saw, a you know, a, um, 
some hard data that really points to just how rough things are for Republicans right now. So when Obama was president, Fox News ratings went gangbusters. They made billions of dollars off of Barack Obama. When Donald Trump was selected, uh, Daily Coast saw massive increases in traffic. We were getting ready to to hold the line financially during this, you know, Hillary Clinton presidency, and we were sweating it. It's going to be tough because partisan performance goes down when your party wins. People are like, all right, whew, can take a break. Instead of Donald Trump was elected, people were even more revved up, more engaged. We grew our audience and we were able to expand. I think we tripled our staff during the Trump years at Daily Coast. So you expect Joe Biden's elected. This should be really, really a huge advantage for partisan right-wing media. And there are stats, Axios actually tracked traffic stats, and they found that, yes, traffic with leftist, left-leaning media was down between 17 and 27%. That's a big number. It's in line with where Daily Coast is as well. It's expected. But what was unexpected is that traffic and ratings uh, among conservative media was down between 27 and 44%. Fox News itself is down 22%. And so all this talk about critical race theory and Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head and caravans and is Kamala Harris going to the border? Like none of that is resonating with that Republican base. Now they have, obviously they have a really loyal core, just like we do, but apparently there's a smaller than us because they've suffered a far deeper drop in partisan performance. And so they're not getting excited can, no, they're not. Can I ask a question? Is that on this? This is the traffic on their site, right? Rather yes. than the Nielsen ratings, just to be yes. clear. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's traffic. It's so mm-hmm. it's, it, I mean, I think it's Nielsen numbers, but it's their traffic numbers. So when you look around, there's no resistance to Joe Biden. There's no, I mean, Q, I guess, is their resistance and they can't really embrace Q. I mean, they, they've <laughs> back away they, from no, it. They, they literally are trying. I mean, you know, Trump isn't, but Trump world supposedly is trying to distance itself somehow from Q. They don't want to be, you know, too broadly associated with conspiracy theories. God forbid. So so but yeah, they don't want to. I guess they, you know, tr- I mean, Trump will embrace anyone who embraces him. Right. Trump is like he's never going to say, oh, no, I don't want your support. I don't want your money. Right. He's that, like a puppy, never. right? That's getting no, a stake. No, he doesn't care who no. gives him the stake. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So so but but supposedly Trump world doesn't want, you know, his whole, you know, his whole venture to be seen as supporting QAnon. Whatever. So we, we ask this question so much, and it's a question without an answer. It's, it's You look at Donald Trump, he cost him so much, not only Congress, the House, the Senate, the presidency, when incumbent presidents generally win. He's only the third president in the last hundred years to not win re-election. Uh, he even cost him governorships in blood red states like Louisiana and Kentucky. So by all indications, he is a loser. He's 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 kryptonite with suburban voters, with young voters, with, you know, black and brown voters. All the growth demographics are, you know, shifting to the Democrats and Republicans, despite all that, cannot quit him. And now you look at these stats, these media numbers, right? They're, they're not even these people are tuning out. They're they're checking out. And that's not including the Trump core Trump supporters, which, you know, I I call call them the hidden deplorables because they only seem to come out when Trump is on the ballot. They weren't watching Fox News to begin with. That's a whole different subset of people. We don't even know if they're going to turn out without Trump on the ballot. And he's probably not going to. I'm guessing they're not. You can't assume it. But I'm guessing they're not because they haven't before. And so it leaves Republicans in a very precarious position. They're, they're losing the money battle. We Democrats have gotten much better at raising money. So what is left for them? That that's the that's the question. What math are they looking at where it makes sense to stay? You know, to keep you know clinging to Donald Trump's leg. I, I can't imagine, frankly. Um, and I'm wondering too if they have are starting to have some regrets about you know, ha- having that moment post January 6th where they could have been like, that's it. We're just cutting them loose. 
We're going to cut our losses and we're going to figure out how to rebuild the party. Right. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that they look, first of all, it looks to me like their polling is telling them they can't possibly base 2022 around January 6th, around this whole 2020 election being, you know, supposedly being stolen, this whole conspiracy theory. They can't afford to do that. And the reason I say that is because Senate Republicans, not the not the candidates who are in the states themselves try, trying to win the primaries, but the people who are in in the Senate right now, wanting to make sure that they net that one seat that they need to pick up in order to gain control of the chamber, they are not wanting to talk about January 6th or the 2020 election being stolen. It is, they don't even, they barely even want to say Trump's name. That's how, you know, like, that's how bad it is. And, and then I look at the messaging that's coming from, and I did this over the weekend from, the Republican Party, you know, at GOP from NRSC, the the Senate campaign arm, the House campaign arm, and what what they have on the teleprompter when when you know Trump goes to give his speech and then goes off on his harangue, right? And it's all they they want to be talking about. They, I think they finally found the thing that they're going to be resting on because they went through this, you know, the great Dr. Seuss controversy, the potato head issue, and whatever. And I think what I think they're going to stick with critical race theory. I think it's like it's kind of their bread and butter thing, you know, to be targeting like Dr. Seuss wasn't entirely on point with the with the whole race thing. And but no, the critical race theory is something that they have their people going to school board things to to raise heck about how critical race theory is being taught, despite the fact that it's not being taught. Right. So they've got a bunch of people whipped up over critical race theory when they know nothing about what it is. And and they falsely wrongly think that it's being taught somehow. Um, You hear Kevin McCarthy this week, and I've heard some uh, variation of this several times now that Democrats want white people to feel kind of feel guilty about their skin color and they want people to be judged by their skin skin color rather than the content of their character. Right. That's the new flip for the for the republicans but they don't they they want to talk about the migrant migrant issue at the southern border they want to talk about people crossing the southern border trump still calls it caravans it's not really the thing that's happening at the moment but and they want to talk about critical race theory they do not want none of them want to talk about um, you know, except for maybe like these people in the Trumpiest of Trump districts in the House want to talk about January 6th and want to talk about the stolen election. Right. That doesn't do any anything for them in these swing districts or these swing states where senators are up. And they're going to have a real problem because they've already got these FBI, this um stuff coming out from the FBI and from the um, court filings of the Justice Department saying, hey, we shouldn't let this January 6th person roam free in society because they're literally a menace to society right now, right? This is a th- 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 this is what they can't afford to be defending and have a conversation about is how the January 6th was mostly Republicans, mostly Trumpers, and they're uh, literally being called by the justice, the U.S. Justice Department, a menace to society. And, you know, and then there's also going to be this select committee that comes up with findings next year from Congress. So that's going to be a real problem. Let's talk about that committee, too, because this is another, I think, huge strategic blunder by the Republican (laughs) Party is is they had an agreement with the Democrats for a committee that was going to be severely hamstrung, right? It had a it had a hard deadline to finish by the end of the year, so it wouldn't have sort of spilled over into the election, the main part of the election cycle. Uh, it gave Republicans a chance to veto any subpoena requests. So we can all imagine how useless that committee would have been. It would have been it would have been a sham of a joke of a <laughs> of a farce, and yet because Donald Trump issued a statement or said something who knows they all you know got scared and and they killed it and now you have a democratic uh, led and dominated committee at this point because it doesn't i don't know if if 
McCarthy has nominated any Republicans for it, but it almost doesn't matter. And Republic Democrats control the subpoenas. I'm pretty sure he hasn't yet. Democrats control the subpoena process 100%. Republicans have no real say in that. And there's no artificial deadline to finish this thing by the end of the year. And so will it change a lot of minds? I, I don't know if it'll change a lot of minds, but what it'll do, it'll keep that in people's, you know, in, in, the, in the back of their minds, right? That that's a thing that happened. And what Republicans are going to do is they're going to try to win suburban voters by, by talking about crime, Oh, the scary, you know, basically it was scary black people are going to come in a neighborhood and rape your white daughter, right? It's the old trope, you know, they can hide it and all the dog whistles they, they want to. That's really the essential core of what they are arguing. And so it, it's going to be easier for Democrats to refute it. Hopefully they'll wrap the, the, the gun issue. That plays very well for Democrats in suburbs where <laughs> crime take away their guns and there's less crime, right? But also talk about, you know, if you're going to talk about a lawless society, Republicans not only have are the only, you know, group to have invaded, attempted a coup against our government, invaded our capital, but a party, a major party is cheering them on. A major uh, conservative conference is allowing those leaders to roam its halls with special guest passes or celebrated as heroes. And now they're trying to defy Ashley Babbitt, the, the woman who was shot trying to uh, to break into the chamber where we had, you know, congressmen uh, and women being under literally under assault. So it's a real rewrite, rewriting of history. And and I don't it's already they're trying to completely erase it, you know, and by having that commission, hopefully it'll keep that issue alive in voters minds. This is so. This is one area where I th- where I, I fear uh, Democrats could miss an opportunity, right? Because what they want to run on, because they're Democrats, and because this is how we are, we want to run on policies. We want to run on what we've delivered. We want to run on what they're doing right now, which is you know putting out a bunch of information, which they should be about the child tax credit, the expanded child t- tax credit that's hitting bank accounts this month, mm-hmm. right? And more power to them. We need to be, you know, owning those successes. But I think they would like to run House Democrats in particular, a 2018 style campaign and election where they talk about, you know, solely policies like they did healthcare policy in 2018, which was perfect and won the day. They really steered clear of like going after Trump and whatever. And frankly, they didn't need to go after Trump in that election because he was on the ballot no matter what. And he spurred a ton of people to the polls and they just stuck on healthcare. And that was the thing to do. I think this is not 2018. I think this is 2022. It's going to be important for them to not only say, we deliver for society, but as a second part of that, Republicans continue to be a menace to it, right? We deliver for society, Republicans are a menace to it. And that is exactly what those court filings are saying from the Department of Justice, is these people continue to be a menace to society, and we cannot have them out roaming the streets while Trump is out there saying that he could be reinstated as president. Yeah, and I mean, another way to put it is it could be, Twenty two, you know, the midterms always a referendum, and it's usually historically a referendum on the incumbent, uh, brand, you know, newly elected president, and it's hard to win. No matter how good that incumbent is, the opposition always seems to be more revved up than than supporters of that of that president. So it can be either twenty twenty two can either be a referendum on Joe Biden, and Republicans will expand that to make it a referendum on the squad and scary black and black people and women, because that's that's what they prefer to do. Or it can be a referendum on Trump and Trumpism and everything that that entails. And in a normal year, option B would not be an option. Right. We couldn't really be talking about Donald Trump when he already lost the election. You know, people would be ready to move on. But like we, you know, we start saying at the beginning of the segment, Republicans are doing everything possible to keep not just Trumpism alive, but even keeping him on the balloting to the point of even fantasizing about if they take control of the House, making Donald Trump speaker of the House. Surprise, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a chump. So you think Donald Trump, if they take the House, you think Donald Trump isn't going to try to muscle his way in? Of course he will. There's no other way. Who's going to say no? (laughs) 
So many of them are so afraid of Donald Trump, even though he has yeah. he has no real power. That's the thing I don't understand. He doesn't have the power that he once had. I mean, well, he's crashing I will weddings say, and bar mitzvahs you know, for a reason. He's he's an entirely sad character, but they've given him enough fuel and enough juice now, and his, his people continue to be a menace. I mean, they they make death threats to people. They threaten people. They, I mean, yeah, yeah. they're scary. Know, they're, they're scary. So, yeah. So if they want to talk about crime in in 2022, I mean, we, we need to be putting up some mugshots of some of these, you know, January 6th offenders, because there's some there's some pretty scary. You know, you want to talk about MS-13 gang members. Oh, look how scary they are. Some of these militia types, they're freaking terrifying. I don't want to walk on the same side of the street with these people. So let's fight crime with crime. The difference being that this one's real and this one tried to literally overthrow our democracy. And that's I, Republicans really had a chance to break free of Trumpism and to stand for something higher than just rank partisan advantage. And, yeah, it may have cost them 2022, it may have cost them 2024, but then they, they rebuild and then they come back. And, and I'm sure by 26, they'd have it all in order. And, and you are in power long enough. You know, voters get antsy and, you know, we may have lost further down the road, with a recharged, rebuilt, reorganized Republican Party that's gone back to the suburbs and said, you know, sorry about that Trump guy. We got rid of him. We're really just about lowering your taxes and keeping you safe. And that could be a very compelling message to suburban voters. Or they, they even had, yeah, they, they could have done that, but they even had it. They even had a chance to make a play for some other uh, for some new voters by you know, I mean, their party didn't stand for anything anymore after Trump. So they could have said, hey, what's what's our best like scenario, best case scenario in terms of which voters we're competing for? We'll just adopt those policies. And maybe some of it's, you know, law and order stuff and maybe some of it's lowering taxes, but maybe some of it is is not. You know, um, so maybe some of it's trust busting and some of it is, you know, minimum wage or who knows? I mean, they could have like remade their party literally based on the fact that Trump had so obliterated everything that they once stood for. Yeah, actually, that's a fantastic point. They actually had a blank slate they could have worked on. They said, did. Right, I, this gonna, is what I don't get. Blank gonna, slate. I'm like, oh, my God, mind blown. They yeah, we're like, going to throw away the stuff that people didn't care about. and Let's let's rebuild. Absolutely. So. Kara, I think it's time to bring our guest on. She is Emily Kane. She is the executive director of Emily's List, which is the nation's premier organization focused on recruiting and electing women candidates. Uh, Emily, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Oh, I'm so glad to be here with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat this is. So, Emily, <laughs> yeah, we've, known, we've known each other for a while. She was running, you know, she is, for somebody who's really focused on helping women get elected, Emily has sort of walked the walk, right? She was a state elected official, uh, legislative. She was, you were the House Minority Leader in Maine. I was. I'm coming to you live today from my house in Orono, Maine. And I was elected here at the age of 24 when I was 24. And I am now 41. And I don't do math in public, so I'll let you figure out how many years ago that was. Um, But it was a while ago. But I went on to serve 10 years in the state legislature here in Maine, serving as the chair of the Appropriations Committee during the recession, very glamorous, uh, and also as the minority leader, the youngest woman to ever hold that position. My greatest accomplishment, though, as minority leader, was taking back the majority for Democrats, and that, which they've held ever since. And so I then ran for Congress, and you are so awesome to be a part of the group that supported me along with Emily's List in 2014 and 2016. And then I honestly won the job lottery in 2017 when I came to Emily's List four years ago as executive director. I do walk the walk and talk the talk because I know what it feels like to not have enough women at the tables of power. Oh my God, do you ever. So before we, we you know, get into sort of the meat of the, of, of the interview, uh, we love to ask people their origin story. And you must have a really good one to have been elected that young. That is actually fairly rare, I would imagine. You might even have some numbers. Uh, so how did you come about to running for office at that tender young age? Well, here's the thing for me. I I never dreamed of being in politics. I don't come from a political family. It was never on my to-do list. For me, it was about following my passion, which led me to study music education, actually, and I see the piano behind you there, music education and voice in college. 
at the University of Maine, which led me to education policy, which led me to a master's degree in higher education, where I was interested in the inequities there, the challenges of affordability, access, success in higher ed. And that's when I began to connect the dots between the issues I cared about and really bad decisions being made by elected officials. Things like student debt, underfunding of Pell Grants, underfunding of public higher education. That's what led me to run for office when I was 24. I went to see my state senator. I told her what I cared about and asked her if she could help me get a job at the state house. And she said, have you ever thought about running for office? I said, no. <laughs> and next thing I knew at the age of 24, that was May of 2004. In June, I finished my master's degree. In July, I became a candidate. In August, I got married. And in November, I got elected all in 2004. And that is my origin story. And for the record, for the listeners at home, I, I want to be very clear. Each of those things are major life events that deserve their own year. I just really wanted to get them all done at the same time. So you don't have to do it that way, just to be clear. That's, that's called overachieving. That's what that is. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you're a little, just, you know, when you care about something enough, you're willing to, to just do things, right? It, it's the same reason with Emily's List Now, as we work with women all across the country who never dreamed of being in politics, something changes in them, whether it was Donald Trump getting elected, which led to now Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan, whether it was the threat of health care going away for people with pre-existing conditions, which led us to Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. Every woman in political office has a story of something she cared about enough that she was willing to put it all on the line. So when you first ran for office, or in either of your races, did Emily's List come in and help you out? Because this might be a good transition to what Emily's List yeah. does uh, and what, what it offers to women candidates who, like you, probably you didn't know anything about running for office, I assume, it, especially at 24. No, I didn't. But my first engagement with Emily's List actually came when I was the minority leader. Prior to then, I was a small dollar donor and a super fan of Emily's List. But Emily's List wasn't uh, doing as much work then that we ha they were doing it at the state and local level. But when I became the minority leader, I knew we needed help to win back the majority. After being in the majority for 40 years, Democrats in Maine needed a new playbook to take back the majority. My first meeting in D.C. was at Emily's List with the political director there, where I asked for help with training, with teaching our members how to fundraise, electing more women and recruiting them from different backgrounds. So Emily's List came to my help. We took back the majority, and it just then happened that a few months later, I began running for Congress. And of course, Emily's List was my first call. And from there, the relationship was, you know, I've seen it from both sides now. I felt as a candidate, like Emily's List saw me as a real person, right? Not just a, a, a person on a spreadsheet with fundraising numbers, but a real live, living, breathing human being who needed help in order to do this right. And now I'm on the other side of it, and I can attest to all the women we help that the, the help is as personal as I experienced it. And I think for me, what I try to bring to this work is that, that understanding that how we treat candidates matters and how we see them as whole, whole people um, and not just another Democrat makes all the difference. So you must have hundreds of candidates you work for. And in fact, the number would be great. So can sure. you tell us how many candidates you actually work with in any cycle and how can you offer that personal human touch with that kind of scale? Well, first of all, I'm the best, Emily's List is the best team in politics. Our team is currently close to 120 and will grow to even bigger before we finish out the election year next year. And we have regional teams for the political side, for finance and campaigns, for digital, for communications, that all work with our candidates and their campaign teams, their caucus directors, to make sure everyone is, is really charting their best path to victory. So in the last cycle, we worked with more than a thousand candidates just in 2020 alone, between our state and local work and our federal work. And that we're on track to do at least that again. Uh, we don't necessarily end up endorsing all of them, but we work with, with a thousand or more. Plus, we've already trained thousands of women already this year, and we don't even know yet when they'll all start their journeys towards running for office. In our 36-year history, we've elected 157 women to the U.S. House and 26 to the U.S. Senate, 16 governors, and more than 1,300 state and local officials. So for us, we are, we're in it to win it every single time, but we're really on top of that, looking to change the barriers that women face when they run for office. Cause it's not a level playing field out there. 
and anyone who tells you it is, is lying. So are you judging how well you do more by how many people you manage to get in the game to run or more by how many of your endorsees actually get elected? I would say both of those metrics plus and. Right. So we, we do for us, it's about changing who feels they can enter the, that pathway to running for office. And we do that a number of ways through direct recruitment. I mean, Emily says we have staff on the ground all across the country that, that go to the non-usual suspects when it comes to running for office. Because with women still at barely 30 percent in state legislatures and barely 25 percent of Congress, women are still not the go to candidates around the country when it comes to recruitment. Emily's list changes that. We focus on the Democratic pro-choice women who are leaders in their communities and who come from all different backgrounds because we know that our government works better when the stories that are told there, the solutions that are considered, reflects the diversity of, of our country. So we, we are out there recruiting to get those women in. Sometimes it takes a woman a couple times or three times before she can win. We certainly focus on the winning, but then we also focus on understanding what those barriers are, the sexism the racism, particularly that women of color are facing as they're running, that intersection of barriers, and what we can do as Emily's List with our power and our voice to to reduce those barriers and help make that a little easier for the next woman who comes along. So if you look at, obviously, women who are politically active in on, like, say, like Twitter, they, yeah. they receive a ton of abuse. And if it's a Black woman or Latina, exponentially yeah. more abuse. Now you're running for office and you are elevated to this position of like national boogie person by the right. And so that abuse becomes, again, exponentially higher. And there may be even threats to their to their physical being. What do you how how I that's as I don't understand how you can you know, you, you live through that and you fight through that. And so how do you guys help these candidates, these women sort of survive that onslaught that must be incredibly exhausting and maybe even damaging to them. You know, I, I wish I could tell you that I've ever met a woman who hasn't faced a double standard or an unfair criticism in her life and work because of her gender, but, but I don't. I don't know a single one from any background, whether she's in politics or not. And we don't sugarcoat it at Emily's List. You know, we know what these women are facing. We work to build a community among them. You know, we see many of our women who meet one another and they become the go-to of, you know, how are you getting through this? How are you handling this attack? I also will tell you, I've, I've picked up the phone late at night to call one of our members that I know received a threat that we learned about, just to check on her, to make sure she's making the, the right choice, that she's in touch with the right people from a security perspective. And I will say, unfortunately, there was a direct correlation between increase in threat to our women. We saw it with high profile cases like Governor Gretchen Whitmer, of course, in Michigan. We saw these high profile cases, but but the high profile ones maybe got grabbed the headlines. But women at every level of the ballot were facing the same kinds of threat, particularly women of color. And so at Emily's List, we try to work with best practices, with safety, with community, with advice. But we also know that our women's voices, they need to be heard that these women deserve, that the only way it's going to change is if we can help them get elected. And that's when we come in with the force and support of our super PAC, of our campaign advisors, of our community that is more than 5 million members strong, who help raise and support these women with not only millions of dollars, but calls and emails and, and just general support. This is This is not easy work. The definition of success is not just let's get to 50% women in office, right? The definition of success is electing as many women as possible. And then on top of that, making sure we're actually making it easier for the women who come behind, right? The image of Kamala Harris taking the oath of office on January 20th is one that changed the trajectory for little girls everywhere who now saw someone who looked like them taking that oath of office. Now I want to make sure by the time that little girl's old enough to run, that the barriers that Kamala Harris faced the racism and sexism that we saw front and center last year, I want to make sure it's easier for that little girl by the time she's old enough to be in the White House. How has the Trump era changed the way you think about this? I mean, just think about this trajectory, right, which is 2018 ends up being 
unbelievably inspiring, right? Um, for Democrats overall, for um, female Democratic candidates in particular, for the role that women played in the 2018 electorate and, and also among the candidates, right? And then, and then we go through 2020. Obviously, what we're seeing is. I mean, I just it, it boggles my mind how the vitriol that has sort of overtaken, you know, um, our electoral space and our political space that people are feeling. And so I wonder, like, how do you how do you how do you square those two things that that incredible amount of energy at the same time that there is this just extreme backlash. And I guess we should have seen it coming because there's, whenever there's an advancement, right. Whenever there's an advancement, there's always backlash. And I, as an LGBTQ, you know, person who covered uh, politics, you know, people would say, well, should we really push now? Because there might be a backlash. And I would just say, there's always a backlash. So it doesn't matter when you do it. There's always going to be a backlash. But I just wonder how this has changed your approach or Emily's List approach in this time. You know, it's a great example there. And I, so I was in the Maine legislature when we passed marriage and then it didn't pass in the ballot box. But then we came back right after when yeah. people said, do you yeah. really want to do this? You just lost. We then came right back and, and won it. Right. We won it outright right. in 2012. So I understand what you're talking about. And what we've seen at Emily's List is that, quite frankly, women are unstoppable. Women are unstoppable, especially when they are pressed. And this is something we intrinsically know. We know over generations and we know of stories in our own families of where women have risen up and been the bedrock. But after 2016, since 2016, Emily's List has had more than 60,000 women reach out to us to say they want to make a plan to run for office. While we were still reeling from the election, they were clicking into our website and signing up to say, I want to make a plan to run. And then they did. And then they are. And they haven't stopped. And the, you know, the, the incoming it has made us put our training materials, make them more readily available, do more partnerships across communities, whether that's with women of color, with labor, with other partner organizations to reach more people in more places with the tools and that we have in the toolbox to help women win. You know, and as we look at the 2022 elections, post redistricting, right, where we're on the verge of these new maps, we are poised for recruitment everywhere at every level because of those 60,000. I mean, it's, it's not a made up number. It's a real number of women whose names we have who said they have an interest in running or helping a woman run. And so we're going to be ready to turn that on. So you haven't seen a fall off really in in people who are interested in running for office, because that would be heartening to hear that, I must say. Yes, I, I can tell you. Yes. But, uh, and if any of my, my team I know are, are hopefully some of them are listening today, they will tell you they are they are swamped with women who want to run for office. And look, now we're in a good problem space. Right. That people say, well, Emily. Are you going to handle it if there are more than one woman running in a primary? I say, that's awesome. I mean, there were only men. I mean, let's be clear. There were only men running in multi-men primaries for a really, really, really long time, pretty much everywhere. Still pretty, pretty much are on the Republican side. So for us, this is like, yes, this is what this is part of the vision right? Let's bring on the multi-women primaries. Let's make it hard for us, right? Let's make us have more options. Let's show, like the Democratic presidential primary did last year, that multiple women can run for office at the same time and not all be the same, right? So, so. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask the exact same question <laughs> because it's an important one. And I, and I, I really want to be really, really crystal clear about it. At the first half of the show, Carrie and I were talking about movements and how new presidents spur movements. So when Obama was elected, the Tea Party movement emerged. And when Donald Trump was elected, the resistance emerged. And the resistance was almost fueled and led by women, you know, mm-hmm. all these organizations. And that led to a massive increase in women candidates, which you just, you just uh, referenced. So that is... is um, yeah, we've seen that and we saw the effects of that and how these women won office in record numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a flip side, right? When a party takes power, there is a drop in in uh, intensity in that party's support, right? So we lost in 2010 because Democrats sort of, you know, said mission accomplished. We won. You know, Obama's president. Racism is solved. And they walked away. And we suffer for it. And we actually saw that also with Trump, right? His base did not turn out in all of those non-Trump 
election years. So one of the things that I've really been keeping an eye on is intensity, both on their side and our side, as we look ahead to 2022. And what, there's a lot of ways to, to think about intensity, but one of them is candidate recruitment. Are we getting the same number of people interested in running as we did in 2020, 2018, when it was actually like life or death? Holy crap, Donald Trump is president. Our republic, our democracy is in danger. I have to do something. Right now, Joe Biden's president. There, we, we'd expect a natural sort of drop. You're saying you haven't seen that drop? And be honest, please. I'm going to be honest. No, I'm going to be totally yeah. honest. We, we haven't seen that drop. I mean, let, let's take a look. Just let's run it down real quick. So, the the yes, Democrats are in power. But there isn't a Democrat out there that's even paying attention a little that thinks that enough is getting done. Right. We still see Mitch McConnell blocking everything that's good in the Senate. Right. We see the Democrats need more members in their ranks to do this right. We see that there are no black women in the United States Senate, and that is not okay for America. So what I will tell you is our community is saying, whoo, we know the Senate's important. Right. And then they look at the House and they say, gosh, that majority isn't as big as it was before. Makes them nervous because they know what it feels like. They remember what it feels like to be in the minority. They're coming with you're like, hey, it was not that long ago, right? So we know. And, and our members are struggling. And even with redistricting, we've got, in many cases, multiple women raising their hands to say, I'm going to run for that seat however it's drawn, whenever it's drawn. Same at the state. And the state legislature says, this is super important. I think that Donald Trump and his administration, the whole awful era that we've just barely survived, literally barely survived, really amplified for more Americans than ever before the power and importance of state legislatures and governors. Can you imagine if we hadn't had a Gretchen Whitmer, a Michelle Lujan Grisham, a Janet Mills, and a Laura Kelly in governor's offices around the country during COVID? I can't. You know, can you imagine if we, as you look already in this calendar year alone, more than 500 anti-choice bill, anti-choice restrictions have been introduced in state legislatures around the country. Only 80 or so of them have actually been passed, and they've been passed in the places where Democrats have not made the gains that we need to make yet. But we have held the line everywhere else. So for us, I think there's a, a gravitas that has settled in that uh, we're not taking anything for granted. And, and I will say, look, we also know we've gotten not as good at predicting what's going to happen in the last few years. I mean, let's call it as it is, friends, okay? All the traditional wisdom, but, you know, the Barack Obama was unelectable until he got elected. Donald Trump was, he's unelectable until he got elected. And, you know, and then women were unelectable until they got elected, right? So, hey, we may not, maybe past isn't as much prologue as, as it is it used to be, right? But we get to write that story when we recruit the women into those seats. And that's what we do at Emily's is we're changing the narrative. And do I know what 2022 is going to look like? No. But I do know that women on the ballot means more women winning and more Democrats winning, period. That's why Emily's List is already endorsed in North Carolina Senate Florida Senate, Pennsylvania Senate, and Wisconsin Senate, right? Yes, so we've yes, already endorsed yes, yes. in the Ohio governor's race. That's that's why we've already re-endorsed all of our incumbents. And we're, you know, we're gonna be coming out of the house here pretty soon. That's why we're focused on holding the assembly and electing Hala Ayala to the lieutenant governorship in Virginia, because there are no off years anymore when the stakes are this high. Right? There are hundreds of thousands. Amen. Of them. Amen to that. Yeah, amen to no off years. Let me take let me let me uh, ask a question that's slightly off the beaten path okay. um, that that may not be as welcome from you, but I ha- I feel like I have to ask it for 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 good progressive activists, which is you know a second ago you were talking about let's have the good problem of having too many women in a in a separate in a primary and we can choose right. So we have a we have a woman who's a longtime uh, endorsee of of Emily's list uh, in the Senate, Senator Cinema. She's currently, you know, as 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 we see it, completely blocking something that is existentially important to the democracy, which is you know the the um, Voting Rights Act and um, and other other things. But that just seems so important. Is there any point at which you guys, and I know she's not up to, you know, she's not up for re-election until 2024, but is there any point at which you guys consider not re-endorsing her? Is there any criteria for how you would decide whether or not to put that kind of pressure on an endorsee? 
Well, let me just start by saying that, of course, at Emily's List, we value the right to vote and all of these restrictions that are being put on voters. I mean, those brave Texas legislators that got on planes to do what they needed to do to stop some bad things, from, even more bad things from happening in Texas. Uh, that's amazing, right? And, and Emily's List is, is it, Emily's List supports that. But Emily's List is an electoral organization. We do not lobby. And I want to be very clear about that. We don't take policy positions beyond our, our pro-choice status, and we do not pre-endorse people for future cycles, right? So we're so proud to have, have known and worked with Senator Sinema since she was a state legislator like me. We were with her in her house race as she was breaking barriers as a member of the LGBTQ community, right? And, and, and they're breaking barriers again in the Senate. We're so proud of her and proud to have, have helped her with those groundbreaking moments. We are not focused on 2024 yet. We have not made any decisions about any endorsements for 2024. So I'm just going to be really honest with you about that. But we are excited by the coalition that's being led by so many Emily's List women, not just the electeds in the Senate and the House, women like Stacey Abrams that we've also worked with since her time in the State House in Georgia to fight for and advocate for the, the rights to vote. That just for us as an organization, we focus on the election side, not on the, on the policy positions. Right. So, so, so there's no there's no red line, though. There's no sort of like if we get to a certain point, there's no I know you don't lobby them, but it's still you still have the power of do we endorse or not endorse our, our line? Our line is choice. And yeah. in, in our history, there's been uh, only, I believe, one exception, two exceptions to where we actually unendorsed people or did not reendorse them. But it was over choice. And it was a long time ago. But our, our issue, our our mission from day one has been to elect democratic pro-choice women. And we believe when we do that, we are making democracy better and stronger overall. And I, we continue to do that right now today. So, um, so you won't, you know, focus on policy after they're elected, but is, do you, do you offer any kind of messaging support, any ideas you're doing polling maybe on what's resonating? And this leads to a question from Vincent Jurgensen on YouTube who asks what issues do, does Emily, uh, do you think Democrats need to laser focus on to hold the House and perhaps even expand our majority? It's a great question. I appreciate the question from Vincent. And, and it, it does work. We do this work all the time, right? Because we're working with our women at every level of the ballot to make sure they're running the most successful campaigns that are reflective of the issues that not only they care about, that are, but that are important to their constituents and future constituents. So right now, when we see the, the House and the Senate championing not just voting rights, but COVID relief and economic support for families who need it, issues like childcare and healthcare. And we know that the issue of abortion access, whether Republicans like it or not, is going to be on the ballot next year in 2022. And with what's looming in the Supreme Court, while you know, access to abortion in Roe is intact right now, we need to make sure that every Republican out there is held to account for their position on Roe, because we know all the Americans, 77% of Americans are with us on this. So when I think about the issues that are going to be important next year, it starts with the families, the working families that have been struggling. It starts with the communities that are still struggling to come out of the pandemic that our women live in, right? That our women are going to be knocking on doors. They, they can't wait to knock on doors again. They missed it in 2020 with the, the pandemic. So they can hear those stories because that's the difference that they're going to make. With, with Emily's List, part of our resources absolutely do go to polling and messaging. But ultimately, we know that every woman needs her own message about why she wants to do this work, what stories she needs to tell, and the best way she can communicate. I think that's one of the things that makes Emily's List different. We see the women for the diverse spectrum that they represent. We don't treat them all the same, but we offer them the same kinds of resources to make sure they have the best message, the best approach, and the most effective path to victory that they need to win. We had Ruben Gallego on, congressman from Arizona, a few weeks ago, and he, he's got a theory. I don't know if I totally buy it, but he's got a theory that Democrats would have done better in 2020 had we been able to go door to door, that Republicans had no restrictions. They ran their campaign. We were severely restricted. You just said, you know, we, we weren't able to go door to door. Did you feel would, would you agree with Ruben that congressman Ruben Gallego that maybe that hurt us or hurt us in the end 
So oh, I would that's start with fanciful thinking on his part. In the interest of full disclosure, I've known Ruben since we were both state legislators. So we go <laughs> way back. I've known him since before he was congressman. And I know, like me, he comes from that school of door-to-door campaigning to, to win votes. But here's what I know. In 2020, I did more Zoom events for candidates than I'd ever done in my life, probably that more than I'll ever do again. And they were... People were able to participate from home without the anxiety of catching COVID. And that in and of itself was worth its weight in gold in 2020. And what I will say is our candidates turned on a dime. And I'm so proud of the Emily's List staff who took everything we know and turned it, turned it around truly overnight to make sure it was adaptable to a virtual environment. I can't look back with some sort of magic crystal ball to know if we would have done better. But what I do know is that people would have been in danger if we had done that. And it was the smart thing to do to follow science and be safe. And in the communities where they had more comfort with it, they did it. And okay, but I think ultimately the anxieties were running high. And I know for me sitting here working in my house, when somebody knocked on my door, it made me jump, right? Who's at my door? Are they wearing a mask? Right? What, what is it today? So I think the trade-off for us, safety first, science first, even though our candidates desperately wanted to be knocking on doors. I did too. I love a good parade. Sign me up all day long. Um, <laughs> I bet, I mean, it won't surprise you that I love parade, uh, but I, I know it won't surprise you, but I, I think ultimately we had to make that choice to be safe in order to stem the pandemic and give us a chance at getting to a fully vaccinated population. And thanks to to the president and vice president, we're on our way. So I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll run. I just have to say, I have to ask now, this is the electoral geek in me. Yeah. You're doing a lot of, lot of polling, yeah. right? And uh, I know everybody has to have their own story for why they want to run. But when you look at issues that are resonating in these very important house districts that are going to be deciding control of this, of the lower chamber, what messages or message do you think is is most resonating in the polling you're seeing? I'd say right now, you know, in Emily's List, we focus not just on women candidates, but on women voters. And mm-hmm. we know that women voters have the power to decide elections, particularly women of color. And so for us, you know, we're just in working with our campaigns, we're seeing a lot of focus still on that anxiety coming out of the pandemic. What's it going to look like uh, on the other side of recovery? We absolutely understand that choice is really important to our voters. And it's not just important to our voters, it's important to Americans. And we are seeing, uh, as we look ahead, that, that that is going to be an issue in a more explicit way, most likely, um, as we head into 2022, because of what is potentially looming in the Supreme Court. And again, everybody's version of truth tells you that 77% of Americans do not want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And at Emily's List, we know that 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 cuts across groups of voters in a very powerful way because Republicans want to take away healthcare, right? They want to take away things from Americans who are just trying to get by. Same way they wanted to take away healthcare after Obamacare, right? Now they want to take away voting rights. And I think what we're going to see is a really clear divide between Republicans wanting to take things away from hardworking Americans, from hardworking families across our country, and Democrats wanting to open up opportunity to trust those families and to, and to give them the best chance at success as we come out of this pandemic. So, Emily, I'm so sorry to say that we are out of time. We could keep talking about this. We could. Probably another hour and it would be well, you can have me back if you want another time. I'd love <laughs> to come back later in the cycle. Oh, I always no. have a lot to say, and I love to talk about. I mean, I will, can I just say one quick thing? Please. For those people who don't know, I'm Emily Kane, and I'm the executive director of Emily's List. But Emily is not me. Emily is an acronym. It stands for Early Money is Like Yeast. It raises the dough. It makes the dough rise. And, and Emily's List raises money to help candidates right early from the beginning. And it's just important to say that because I want to make sure people really know that Emily's List is, is bigger than any one person. It's a strong community of candidates, elected officials, and our supporters. And we're so lucky. Yeah, we, we are very big fans of getting people to donate early, to uh, donate to organizations yes. on the ground, doing a lot of the door-to-door work. And uh, in fact, this fall, we're going to be doing a whole series and all the big battlegrounds, really focusing on a state at a time. And once we get some candidates in, you know, more Val Demings type of candidates, we're definitely going to have you back on to talk about how they're doing and how, how uh, we all can best support those candidates. So thank you well, so much. If you're talking about women or you're talking about Maine, I'm your gal. And I just I want to thank you both so much 
for having me. This is such a treat um, in the afternoon here. And I, I just, I'm excited uh, to be a part of it. Uh, Emily, thank you. executive director of Emily's List. Thank you so much. See you. Carrie, that is our show. We went right to the very end because the conversation it gives me hope. was so hope. good. It gives me hope that that the candidate drop-off hasn't happened. People are still yes. engaged. They still want to make a difference. This is not 2010. This is not 2009 where people were dropping off and saying mission accomplished. We we're, learned as a movement that mission I think we're we're in a historical times. Continue to be in a historical times. Absolutely. So that's our show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Emily Kane, for being such a fantastic guest. Thanks, Gary, for being my awesome co-host. Thank you to Cara Salaya, who was filling in as uh, producing the show. And thank you, the listener and the viewer, for joining us. We are here every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. You can talk to us at dailycoast.com. You can create an account, engage in that conversation. You can talk to us at Twitter, at Daily Coast. Thank you so very much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter, at Daily Coast. See you next week.